to the listeners of Mormon Discussion Podcast, this episode is going to talk about abuse. It's also going to speak directly about sexual abuse. And I simply want to warn the listener that if this is a sensitive topic that is triggering to you, would you please just skip this episode and, and just move on to, to another podcast or another episode for the day? It, it is not my hope that I will cause any trauma to anyone out there. It's, I want to talk about this in a serious way. And I simply want to warn the listener that if this is a subject that, that is very sensitive to your heart and your experience, that it's going to be emotionally hard and you don't want that today. Would you please turn off the podcast now? Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful to be with you today. Let me present a scenario. And today I want to talk about... I'm trying to think if I even want to give you the topic before I jump into it. But today I want to talk about the unhealthiness of Mormonism. And I, and I want us to be vulnerable. Like I want us to say like, can we express serious concerns and talk about them openly and not get defensive? And I don't want the critic on one side, you know, the, the person who's just angry and bitter at the church. Like I don't, I don't want you to, to like let that emotion override you as you listen to this episode. And, and the same thing to the other side, to the apologist who's listening. Like, can you not get defensive? Can you just listen? Just see if there's any truth at all to what I'm saying. And if there is, like, what is the healthy way to address it? What are, what are the venues, the avenues, the mechanisms in place to address it? Now let me tell a story. Let me present a scenario. Your daughter just turned 12. You hold a birthday party for her. You invite family, friends, and even neighbors to the party. At the party, your 50-year-old neighbor asks your 12-year-old daughter if the two of them can chat for a minute. He then ducks behind a door to your computer room, invites her to come in and have a seat. During this conversation at this birthday party, where the two of them are alone behind a closed door, away from the rest of the folks at the party, including you as the parent. The two of them have a conversation which includes questions of a sexual nature. Now, some of you might be connecting the dots. Some of you are sensing where I'm going and you're getting angry. You're ready to riot in agreement with what I'm about to say and others are getting mad at me, ready to offer an apologetic response that this is apples and oranges and that I am being unfair. But before we get to what it is I'm going to say, Can we simply focus on the hypothetical situation I posed? Like step back, set Mormonism off to the side for a moment. And in the situation I just set out, 
Was, was that a healthy situation with healthy boundaries? Was it an appropriate thing to be happening? What were you feeling as I told that story just on the basis of the story? Again, forget that I'm about to connect it to Mormonism. What did you feel? Were you comfortable with the contact that this neighbor initiated? What was it about the situation that made you uncomfortable? Now, I've got some guesses about what your discomfort was around, and I want to give some of those guesses. Most, if not all of us, I'm guessing, are uncomfortable with an adult man having a private conversation with a young girl behind closed doors when he is not the immediate family of that young girl, and even more uncomfortable that it is a stranger. I am guessing that you see the space in such a situation for abuse to occur, that that there is some boundaries here that are inappropriate. What if we change the venue to where I was going with this? What if it is your ward congregation and your 50-year-old bishop who wishes to initiate a confidential one-on-one conversation with your 12-year-old daughter behind closed doors where he has the freedom and ecclesiastical authority to ask probing questions of a sexual nature that may include topics like what he defines as modesty, whether your daughter keeps the law of chastity, and him answering how we define chastity, and perhaps on topics even as sensitive as masturbation. I hear the apologetic voice now. Bishops are almost always good men who do not go around a sexual, do not go around sexually abusing young members. These men are only doing what the Lord has asked them to do. If God is okay with these interview dynamics, then who are you to raise a voice of concern? This type of situation happens all the time in the real world. With our vote of confidence and approval with doctors, dentists, therapists, social workers, psychologists, and psychiatrists, just to name a few. Now, let's back away from that defensiveness. Let's go through these responses. Let's filter out whether these are in fact apples to apples, apples to oranges, whether these apologetic responses really work. First, I grant that bishops are generally good men and are often great men. That said, some bishops, some few in the minority, are sexual abusers, pedophiles, and some abuse in other ways, verbally, emotionally, physically. Again, let me just say, the issue is not about what percentage of bishops are good men. Rather, the issue here is whether health professionals would have us focus on what spaces our culture creates and boundaries our culture creates that are unhealthy and open themselves up to abuse of all kinds, as well as teaching our youth and the members of our church unhealthy boundary dynamics. Second, the second point raised in the apologetic perspective, that these men are doing what the Lord has asked them. Let me say, sure, they didn't ask for this calling, and most of them are doing the best they can. But just because someone doesn't seek out the calling of bishop doesn't make an unhealthy and unsafe interaction more healthy or more safe. Third, if God is okay with the situation, who are you to raise a concern? You see, it's this very logic that shames people into not raising a voice against injustices and harms done in the name of God. It is this apologetic response that could have easily factored into how Mountain Meadows happened. It is this 
that could have members carry out blood atonement. It is this that had parents reiterating church leaders, telling their kids it is better for them to come home in a coffin from their mission than having lost one's virtue. It is this type of culture of shame that keeps leaders from being vulnerable to constructive criticism while they teach racist theories as doctrine. If any person wants to hold the ground that God set all this up, every jot and tittle, and hence any criticism or concern giving voice to the unhealthiness that leads to us pointing out that the whistleblower is someone who is less faithful and that we shame them in some other way, then I say shame on you. If abuse and harm and trauma occur, the God I believe in expects me to speak up, even if that unhealthiness is occurring in his own true and living church. The fourth apologetic response, this happens all the time in the real world. And yes, it does. In terms of this being an interaction between an adult and a child in a private setting. But here's the difference. And I hope we can see it. That, that my, as a parent, or my child, reaching out to a trained health professional to seek out some sort of help for my kid, where this professional is a trained professional and has been trained to know what are the appropriate modes of behavior and where ethical lines exist versus having an untrained lay ecclesiastical leader who initiates the conversations with young boys and girls, where the spirit can have that leader asking extra probing questions and where this untrained lay leader can give bad and even abusive counsel and advice, claiming it is the mind and will of God and done by the spirit. You see, these apologetic answers are not satisfactory. Every one of the apologetic responses, if we're going to get defensive, we're going to build walls, we're going to, we're going to protect and be loyal to the institution on all angles, regardless of if there's unhealthiness here. These answers are not satisfactory. So now let me share some of the data. According to the PCAU, the Prevent Child Abuse Utah, one in five kids will be sexually abused before the age of 18. Utah's rate of 27% is three times the national average of 9%. At a conference about preventing child abuse, it was reported that Utah ranks eighth in child abuse and first in sex abuse rates of children. Numbers show Utah is the eighth highest among all states. The state had 6,900 cases in 2014. Of those, 27% were sex abuse, the highest rate of any state. Only 13% of cases were neglect, one of the lowest rates among all states. Studies show that one in three Utah women has been sexually assaulted, and one in six women in Utah report having been raped. Utah Utah statistics say that rape occurs in this state way higher than the national average. Sexual assault is a serious problem in the state of Utah. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimate that 18.1% of Utah women have been raped with nearly half of Utah's female population, 47.8%, having experienced some form 
of sexual violence in her lifetime other than rape. Most sexual assaults, between 80 and 90%, are committed by male perpetrators whom the victim knows. And in fact, one report, Rape in Utah 2007, a survey of Utah women, states that only 13.3% of Utah victims are assaulted by a stranger. Weapons are rarely used in sexual assaults, less than 10%. However, victims still suffer some form of physical injury in approximately 27% of reported cases in Utah. Only 12.7% of victims of sexual assault in Utah seek medical care following an attack. Do those data points bother you? Because they bother the heck out of me. They bother the heck out of me. And when Utah leads the nation in something positive or something negative, you can bet your bottom dollar that it has a connection to Mormonism. Now, the defensive answer that shows up in some of these articles is, quote, Utah has tougher laws than any, than, I'm sorry, quote, Utah has tougher laws than other states and may pursue child abuse more vigorously. And that might help explain the high rates, unquote. I'll let you decide. Does it explain it? Does it does it explain the huge difference? Me personally, I don't think so. Now let's talk about what exactly is the unhealthiness of grown adult men meeting alone with young people behind closed doors. Please don't be defensive. I am begging the church. Don't be defensive here. Like, let's have just a vulnerable conversation. I'm happy to hear someone else's perspective and point of view, but I just want to talk about, like, what do we do in Mormonism? First off, let me say, is there is it possible there's any unhealthiness here? And if there is, are we allowed to conversate about it? Are we allowed to raise questions about it? So, so what exactly is perhaps the unhealthiness of grown adult men meeting alone with young people behind closed doors? Please be vulnerable in this very moment, just to simply weigh based on logic and rationale, experience and what your gut tells you. I simply want you to weigh in your mind the unhealthy dynamics and whether perhaps it even is unhealthy. Like if something were unhealthy, Are you even in a place that you could permit yourself to like validate it and name it? And I'm hoping you can go there with me. So take a health professional's perspective and just think about these situations. When such an interaction, when such interactions as an adult and a kid, and this adult is unrelated to this kid and they meet behind closed doors where this adult can ask questions and, and kind of probe into that child's life. And, and this is culturally seen as acceptable to the adults. Do these kids develop a social acceptance that such boundaries are okay and that such boundaries are normal? Do young people who are taught to see ecclesiastical leaders as having authority, having the power and authority of God, authority to determine right and wrong, authority to determine what questions are appropriate, authority to determine what is confidential and what isn't, is that healthy? Is that a healthy boundary for a child to see as normal in their life? That a stranger can sit down with me behind closed doors and that this person has authority to ask what they want. And that authority comes from God. And again, I'm not debating the truthfulness of the church here. I'm simply saying, like, have we created some dynamics here that are unhealthy in protecting our kids? Number three, when one's culture is a patriarchy 
and the men are seen as having power and authority of God, and one is taught to trust that power and authority, are we creating a false sense of security that these young people may go through life putting themselves in situations where they would normally be cautious, but because of learned behavior, they extend an unhealthy trust and let their guard down when alone with a male that they see as having authority or being trustworthy simply because that male is on the right team. Does this sound reasonable? Is this healthy? Number four, do young people in Mormonism see isolated contact with an adult who is not related to them as acceptable? Does Mormonism teach us that when someone who's a member of the church, who's an adult, wants to have a private conversation behind closed doors, that it's an appropriate thing to do. Is there a naivete where one develops a learned behavior to see isolated contact like this as safe and appropriate? Number five, do our young people not develop normal boundaries of what questions are appropriate for a stranger to ask us? Do our children learn appropriate boundaries? of when to step away from an unhealthy conversation and when to realize like, no, I don't have to answer that. Or no, I don't have to do what this person is asking. Do we in Mormonism create and help our kids to understand these safe boundaries? Number six, do our young people develop normal boundaries of what kind of secluded meetings between two people are safe or appropriate? Number seven, Are our young people taught to know what boundaries are appropriate in these meetings with leaders? And is there an unhealthy emphasis on trusting a member of the priesthood or a leader in the church beyond what would, what a health professional would say is a safe and healthy boundary to have? Number eight, does the system educate our members on who is safe to talk to and how one confronts an abuser when that abuser is a church leader. And again, I agree, this perhaps, and I believe it, happens rarely. But do we have a mechanism in place for members to address any kind of abuse that has occurred? Or does the system, by its very nature, even if it's just a little bit, lean towards protecting the leader? Let me give some signs of inappropriate behavior that these can be subtle at first, but these are early warning signs that should raise a red flag. I didn't write that. These, This was printed in a manual for the medical profession, suggesting to nurses and to doctors what are healthy boundaries. The first one, discussing intimate or personal issues with a patient. You see, behind closed doors, an adult and a youth who are unrelated and that there is room and space there to ask questions of a sexual nature. It violates the very thing that the health professional industry says you're crossing an unsafe boundary here. The second one, engaging in behaviors that could be reasonably interpreted as flirting. Another, keeping secrets with a patient or for a patient. Another, believing that you are the only one who truly understands or can help the patient. Think about that. In Mormonism, right, the bishop has keys. He has power. He has authority. He has a mantle. He has stewardship. He is the guy. And I have, and I totally get, like, when I was serving as a bishop, I recognize fully, like, like, I really am not trained to do this kind of counseling. 
can I suggest you go see a health professional? But I know, because I've seen it, that there are leaders out there who feel like because of that mantle, because of that stewardship, they have suddenly became a health professional and they are giving as good or better advice than a trained therapist would give. Another, spending more time than is necessary with a particular patient. Another, showing favoritism. Another, meeting a patient in settings besides those used to provide direct patient care or when you are not at work. Look, I'm not saying Mormonism has all these, but they have some of them. These interactions have some of these. Another article that discussed boundaries said that healthy boundaries have the following characteristics. The bound, that there are boundaries present. Like both sides of the table know what the boundaries are. That they're not only present, but those boundaries are clear. I don't think that exists in the interactions within this dynamic that we're speaking about in the church. That the boundaries are appropriate versus controlling or manipulative. Right? That the conversations, that there's a balance there. Like, you can't say this and I can't say that. We can't just go where we want to go. And you don't get to manipulate or control me in this conversation. Like, think about Mormonism. Think about these interactions. And does a bishop, not that he does it, whether he does it or not doesn't matter. What happens is, are the boundaries present in that meeting or are the boundaries so distorted that a church leader can easily be controlling and manipulative? And if he can easily, then it's an unsafe boundary. Another one is that, that these boundaries and these conversations be firm but flexible and not rigid. Is there a rigidness to Mormonism that shows up in these conversations? That these conversations be protective of the other person and not hurtful or harmful. That these boundaries, these conversations be receptive, not invasive or domineering. That these boundaries, when you are on the one side of the table, not be set by anyone else but yourself. In other words, I set my boundaries, you set your boundaries, and I have the power in these interactions to to hold the boundaries I have set for how I will be talked to and how this conversation will go in terms of what you say to me, right? Like, think about that. The question in the end is not whether there is a higher number of church leaders who abuse versus the national population. Number one, I don't know those statistics. And again, I think most bishops are good men and most are trying their hardest to be good and supportive to the members that they have care and stewardship for, that they truly do care for them and they truly are trying to help them as Jesus would. Instead, the question is if the system we employ in terms of leader interaction with members, does it create unhealthy boundaries, an unhealthy trust in a distorted, unhealthy boundary? Does it create a blind trust in male authority figures throughout life? Does it create a blind trust in a male simply because he's on God's team? And I simply say, like, my perspective, me personally, my perspective is yes. 
And we can shoot the messenger here or we can take a look at the in the collective mirror and we can raise a voice of concern over this unhealthiness and begin to reframe how these interactions occur. Here's some suggestions. Could parents be encouraged to be in these interviews? That no leader... That, that the that the cultural understanding is that I'm going to meet with your child alone, but rather that the cultural understanding is, if at all possible, would you please be in here with us? That that the child gives permission for this interaction to take place and that they understand they have a right to say no. Does the child understand that they have permission to invite their parent in and that at any time this conversation is uncomfortable, they have a right to end it? Could there be more than one leader present, perhaps a male and a female, or perhaps just a female with the parent in there? Could boys talk to men and girls talk to women? Could there be better training on what is an appropriate interview and an appropriate line of questioning? In other words, some leaders think that they can, they just ask the worthiness questions as they're written and they don't go beyond the question. Other leaders say they have a perfect right when the spirit tells them to go beyond the standard questions and ask further probing questions. And so many members report that when leaders do that, that there's some violation, some harm, some abuse that occurs. Can we honor that that happens and that some leaders miss the mark? And can we do better to train our leaders to know what the healthy boundaries in these conversations are? Can we leave more room for what is thought to be the spirit to actually be us, and hence not always the right things to say and do? Can we encourage boundaries where our young girls and boys will grow up having a sense that their own moral authority trumps what is imposed on them by another? When we see the statistics of abuse, the statistics of suicide in Utah, can we be vulnerable enough to say that while these issues exist in human nature, that maybe there's something unhealthy within Mormonism that magnifies these issues? And if so, what does it say about us that we are too defensive to be willing to confront this, to peel back the layers and to see where we can improve? Brothers and sisters, I love Mormonism. I am so grateful that Mormonism found me when I was 17 years old. It picked me up off the wrong path and it put me down on, at the time, what was an incredibly awesome path, and it blessed my life so much. There is so much good in Mormonism that I love and adore, but that doesn't mean that I can't say there's also something unhealthy here, and, that, and it doesn't mean that I can't just keep talking about this unhealthiness, hoping that we will address it and that we'll be willing to make the changes needed to be healthier. Mormonism in so many places within it are gorgeous and beautiful and, and spiritual and full of growth and depth and expansiveness. There are other areas of Mormonism that are shriveled up and they're hurtful and they're dark and they cause trauma and they marginalize others and they are in some respects unique to Mormonism at least to the extent of which Mormonism magnifies these negative traits. Can we talk about it? Can we look in the mirror and say, there's something here that's not right? It's my prayer that we can be vulnerable, 
that we can have conversations and say like, look, let's just talk about it. If there's something unhealthy here, we want to address it. We want to fix it. And it doesn't matter how uncomfortable it makes us. It doesn't matter what beliefs and procedures and policies we have to shed. It may even require us to ask God if there's some way we can adjust what we think is the true doctrine because perhaps it isn't. Can we do that? It's my prayer. I want a more beautiful Mormonism for my children and my grandchildren. May the Lord warm our shoulders enough to see his light in the midst of these hard conversations. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen.